WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk. And I love having repeat guests like this one. She should be the woman of the year as far as broadcasting is concerned. And she's been a friend for more years than I care to count. And she is the one and only and very lovely Candy O'Terry. Wow. Hi, Candy. Well, hello. I would like to have you say that wherever I go. <laughs> you want me you want me to do it again? I didn't write it down, but I can I can do another one and make it up as I go along. Maybe we do a little Ken Meyer recording and I just play that wherever I go. The second one might be better now that we rehearsed it. <laughs> well, <laughs> nice now, to talk to you. It's always nice to talk to you. Now, this came about because of a conversation that we had um, when you and Gay were at Magic. And we didn't discuss this as much, but when you and Gay were there, you both came up or somebody came up with the idea of exceptional women. Enlarge on that a little bit and, and tell me about it and how it all got started. Oh, boy, what a labor of love that program was. And Gay Vernon, to me, as a newcomer to broadcasting, I, I came to broadcasting as a singer and a, and a jingle singer and a voiceover talent. And when I got to know her, she was just somebody that I looked up to as the news director at Magic 106.7. And I had gone to a luncheon. We're going into the Wayback Machine here. I'd gone to a, lunch, <laughs> a luncheon for the United Way, and they were saluting some women in the Boston community who were doing great things with their lives. And there was a woman there who had been a victim of domestic abuse, and she had gone on to single-handedly change some of the laws in Massachusetts around the rights of victims and victim abuse in general. And I thought, wow, I wish I could interview her. Just one problem, I'd never done an interview before. So I went back to the newsroom and I told Gay about meeting this young woman. And she was very excited about it. And I said, hey, listen, would you ever consider teaching me how to interview? Could I just sit in and watch you do it? And of course, because she was such a pro and so generous, she agreed. And that night, I went home and I created what I would call for listeners a business plan. I had an idea for a program called Exceptional Women. In fact, the show was going to be called Extraordinary Women. And our program director, a guy named Don Kelly, who was in the Hall of Fame, said to me, you sound like a New Yorker when you say extraordinary. So call it exceptional. And I said, OK, I'll do whatever you want as long as you give me a program. Right. <laughs> so here I was, a person with a program and a co-host, and I didn't know how to interview. So Gay really took me by the hand. She taught me how to do it. And when we started out the show, the idea really was to just do a four-part series on women doing great things with their lives. And Ken, the list of women that became quickly available to us was so long that the show lasted for 23 years and 600 women later. Pretty amazing. Wow, that's a lot of women. It sure is. And I tell you, the, I, I say this to everyone. There's no shortage of women doing great things in this in this city and in this country. All right. Let's let's talk about some of these women. Now, I went to some of your luncheons, not all of them, 
And and there were a couple that I wish I could have met. And, and we'll start with those. Okay. Uh, two names off the top of my, as my teacher used to say, my little pointed head are <laughs> Doris Roberts, who was in Everybody Loves Raymond, who, and who was author of a book called Are You Hungry, Dear? <laughs> and, and also Leslie Stahl, who was, and I think still is, part of 60 Minutes. Yes. Yes. And, you know, as luck would have it, uh, Ken, Gay had done both of those interviews. So she knows them far better than I do. But what I can give you for color is that from the moment Doris Roberts walked into that room, she had the wrongs of fans all around her. And what a talented woman she is, not just for television, but for film and for stage. You know, she's one of those triple threat actresses. And she's also someone with an incredible ability to tell a great story and to be very generous. She was so interested to hear about these local heroes that we were honoring that day, more so than she wanted to tell her own story. So that's what I remember most about Doris. And then in the case of Leslie Stahl, she told one of the most fabulous stories, and I will try to tell it for your listeners now. I guess she was supposed to be doing a, a she was supposed to be doing a very famous interview with someone and her father her, she called home to see if her parents had listened to the interview and I think her interview had gone off the rails somehow she'd lost control of the interview and it was with a very famous person it may even have been like a presidential candidate I can't remember all the details but her mother answered the phone and she said, oh, hello, darling, how are you? And so Leslie's just like, oh, my God, mom, I screwed that up so badly. Oh, wow. Well, uh. And then she goes, can I talk to dad? And she goes, your father is too upset to come to the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was just an example that no matter how big you are, seeking the approval of your parents is something that we all do. So I thought that was a great story. You know, that's interesting, too, because when I would get excited and, and do an interview, I would call my parents. I remember I interviewed I interviewed Casey Stengel oh. uh, one one night at a baseball writer's dinner. And my parents both had to get up the next morning to go to work. And of course, I was working nights. So when I got home, it was it was my time to go to bed. But I was so excited. I had to call home and say, hey, guess who I interviewed? And uh, who? Uh, Casey Stengel. Well, luckily, my mother, who didn't know much about baseball, knew who Casey Stengel was. And and they would be all and I would always, uh, you know, call them, too, if I if I had a great interview or did something yeah. because, at the, uh, you know, BZ at that time reached 38 states and Canada. And if we had read a book or something by an author, my father would stay up on a Saturday night and listen to see how the author was. So my parents did the same thing. It was Do you great. remember the very famous movie, Play Misty for Me? Yes. Yes, okay. they do. Clint Eastwood. Right. My father used to listen to every show I did on Magic 106.7. And he thought he was being so funny when he would call me on the hotline, which, by the way, he should not have been doing, <laughs> and say to me, hey, uh, Candace, can you play Misty for me? <laughs> he thought that was just so funny. <laughs> every every radio station had a hotline. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone, we did. Oh, yeah. And, 
luckily I didn't answer it. I had to talent had to. So, yeah. And just so your listeners know, getting a phone call from your boss on the hotline is the biggest dread in radio, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. When that rings, you sit there and say, oh, my God, I'm totally screwed now. (laughs) Yep. I should have played this and I played that instead. That's right. (laughs) All right. But the first year that you won the Gracie Allen Award, tell us about that, what it meant, your trip to New York and who some of the people were that you met when you were there. Oh, my goodness. What an incredible experience that was. And that was that was the award that we both were coveting. It's the award that we had hoped we would receive and the first year that we entered the competition. And this is a national competition at that time from the American Women in Radio and Television, now called the American Women in Media or the Alliance for Women in Media. But it is it is like winning an Oscar. It's like winning an Emmy. It is the top, top award. And so we won like the first time out and all the brass from the radio station came. And I remember just, we were on top of the world. And when we got there, it was this beautiful theater with a red carpet and we're wearing gowns and it's like an out of body experience. And then we find out that not only have we won this award, but we're being honored with the gold award. Like they put like gold, you know, uh, medals around our neck and we're both looking at each other going, is this like a twilight experience? You know, it was just so crazy, but it it really ended up being one of those moments that, you know, someday if, you know, if I get the chance to go to heaven and I get to see the the movie of my life, I think that's going to be one of those moments. Right. And we would go on to, to win 22 more of those. And the program uh, holds the national record for the amount of Gracie's for one program. And let me state that is more than ABC, NBC, CBS, the Oprah Network. It's more than Lifetime Television. It's more than any other program. All right. But but what I want to know is what what famous people were there? I mean, obviously, there were women there. Who was there that we would recognize and say, oh, my goodness. Barbara Walters was there. I remember seeing her and there were always throngs around her. So I didn't get a chance to go over to her and introduce myself. I remember thinking, my goodness, she's so tiny. (laughs) That was my first reaction. (laughs) But she was just such a giant, you know, in everybody's eyes. And the team from 60 Minutes was there. I think that's where we first met Leslie Stahl. And uh, I think... um, I think was David, David Muir was there, interestingly enough, long before, long before he was, you know, hosting his own show. I think he was just a reporter there, as a matter of fact, because it was way back. But it was a it was an amazing experience. It really was. And, and, And for 23 years, you did this. And won it. We we won pretty much every year. Some years we won multiple awards in the same year from them. You know, best public affairs program, best portrait biography series. I'm I'm looking at some of the statues that I have here in my house. Yeah, it was a big deal. No, I I remember. Uh, you know, I remember names like of local people that I don't remember who did what, 
but I remember local names like Robin Young, uh, Joyce Go Haywick, um, and there was some young lady, I think, was there a Sarah French or somebody that you interviewed from Channel 7? Yeah, um, I think I did. I mean, I, I yeah, and I, I've, I've spoken to um, Maria and uh, Lisa Hughes, and Liz Bruner is one of my best friends, as well yep. as Miss Joyce Cole Haywick, whom yep. I just call Cole Haywick, or <laughs> JK. Uh, yeah, these people like have all that. become very dear friends of mine, and they're such talented women. There's, I must say, Boston is the home of, as we all know, for in the case of WCVB, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the top local television stations in the nation. And the women who are on the air there are superstars, for sure. Maria Stefanos is a superstar and a nice person on top of it. Yes, I have met her and interviewed her. I totally agree with you. And Lisa uh, she, Hughes, same thing for WBZ. She's uh, She's been doing it for a long time. Got her start in Idaho doing the fishing report. Oh, wow. Her I have not interviewed. I would like she's to. She's got lots of stories. I'll, I'll, I'll bet. But... Um, other famous people that, that you have interviewed, uh, I know, and again, I don't know who did it. Somebody, either you or Gay, interviewed the first lady astronaut. That is uh, correct. Uh, we Gay interviewed Sally Ride. That's, and that's, that was one of our most coveted interviews. And I believe some of the sound from that interview was one of our Gracie Allen Awards. But I will tell you my favorite part of that interview uh, Gay asked her, please describe for us what it's like to lift off in the Challenger. And her answer was so stunning. She said, you know, you go through all this preparation. And when the moment comes and you are strapped upside down inside the Challenger, getting ready to lift off into space, and when the rocket boosters are ignited and you start to lift off. She said, it is so out of body and so powerful. Those rocket boosters are so powerful that you almost feel as if you don't, you, there's no way to describe it because only a few human beings have experienced this. And she said, is it terrifying? Absolutely. But what makes it palatable for the human being is you have a list of things that you're supposed to be doing at that time. You're sitting there, but you're watching, you know, buttons and dials and things like that. So you're supposed to be paying attention to a lot of things. But she also mentioned what it's like to get your first look out the window and see earth below. And she said, that is just a humbling experience that not a lot of people have or ever will in this world. Another one that I remember, and again, I don't know who did it, um, Marlo Thomas. Oh, Marlo Thomas. Wow. Um, she, <laughs> she, is a, she is a hoot. Let me tell you, when Marlo Thomas is in the room, she is totally in the room. And she does have the scratchiest voice. You know, it's almost the kind of voice where you want to put her on at night, like Suzanne Plachette. You know, she's just got this <laughs> really, you know, you want to put her on at night on a love song show. My big thing about Marlo is the work that she's done for in her father's name for St. Jude Research Jude, Hospital. Yep. 
And I have been to the hospital and I have met the children and met the nurses and met the doctors as part of a big fundraising thing that I did for another radio station. And it is God's work there. And and when parents check in to St. Jude Research Hospital, they don't have to open up their wallet. They don't have to pay for a thing. And their children are so well cared for there. And here's something that a lot of people don't know. And that is that the protocol for most every children's cancer comes from St. Jude. And then it is disseminated to all of the children's hospitals in this nation. So Boston Children's Hospital, which we are so proud of here in Boston, they get their research directly from all the great work that has done has been done at St. Jude. And so that was really a, a large subject. And of course, you know, talking about her television shows and talking about being married to Phil Donahue. Was just, you know, it was yep. a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Well, it was funny. I met her once, but I didn't know it was her. I was in the lobby at BZ waiting for a cab to go home. And this lady came up to me and said, uh, you know, how are you and stuff? No, pretty good. You know, do you work here? Yeah. What do you do? Well, I'm a producer, at, you know, and I'm just standing here waiting for a cab. And I knew that voice, but I couldn't place it. And I told her, I said, look, I, I hate to do this. And I said, I'm terribly embarrassed, but I know that I should know who you are. And I don't. So would you please tell me? And she said, I'm Marlo Thomas. And all <laughs> I could say was, oh, my God, I loved your father. Oh, I know. And and you know what? I bet that she loved knowing that you didn't know who she was, because I think stars just get the, oh, my God, you're Marlo Thomas. Oh, my God, you're Mariah Carey. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. All day long. Right. So it's refreshing for them to meet someone who is honest enough to say, I recognize your voice, but I'm not sure I know who you are. I bet that was a, a really nice, refreshing comment for her. That's just my feeling on it. Well, I hope it was for her because it was embarrassing for me because <laughs> I knew I should I should know who that was. And of course, we could go on and on about St. Jude because I interviewed Danny Thomas once and he told me the story of how he he that's prayed right. for to God for hope. And uh, that's said, how St. Jude said, dear got Lord, started. help help me make it through this month. I, I have no way to support my family. And if you'll help me so that yep. I can I can make it. In this business, this tough show business, I will I will erect a hospital in your name. And he actually was was praying to Saint Jude, who is the patron the patron saint of the impossible. He performed in Rochester one night, and I went, and it was one of the most move. I I loved. Him. I mean, he was a he was a pro. Let's great entertainer, it. great entertainer, a wonderful entertainer, and and a nice man, and. Um, it was funny because they said, can anybody play the piano? And I said, yeah, a little bit. And they said, well, can you play Danny Boy? Because the press conference was at a, at a hotel in Rochester when we cue you when he walks in the, in the door. I said, sure. So I did. And all of a sudden, these two arms encircled me and this voice whispered in my ear and said, hi, I'm Danny Thomas. <gasps> and all I could do was stop and say, I know. <laughs> oh, my God, that is a great, great story. Hey, can I tell you a couple of my favorite stories from my favorite interviews? Of course, of course. 
Well, let me tell everybody what it's like to interview Mariah Carey uh, at the Four Seasons. It's quite an experience. And I was trying to be as memorable as I could because I knew as an interviewer that I was not alone. We were all in a big, long line waiting our turn to talk to her. And at that time, she was working on what would then have been her 16th number one song. So I, she'd had 15. So I went to Winston's Flowers florist and I asked them to please give me 16 long stem white roses with tubes on the end of them and the biggest diva bow they could find. 15 for her number ones and one for good luck because I knew she was working on the 16th. So I had them put it in a big box with the biggest bow and I show up at the Four Seasons. And there's Maddie from Maddie in the Morning and he's saying, well, hey, what's, what's in that box? I said, get your hands off my box. <laughs> and then Billy Costa walks over and he goes, hey, what you got in that box? I said, you stay over there because you're not getting anything that's in this box. And here comes Romeo and Pebbles and, you know, the morning team from Mix and everybody's all around me. I go, hey, listen, guys, I can't help you. These are my roses, right? So we're all waiting and she's four hours late to start the interviews. And there were a couple people, I have to tell you, who by this time are already in the bar having cocktails. And I thought, okay, Candy, don't go over there. Just, you know, <laughs> don't be drunk when you interview Mariah Carey. So finally, it's my turn to go upstairs. And she's staying in the penthouse. By the way, she was four hours late because she was taking a nap. This is true. Okay. So oh. I get I get all the way up there. And her bodyguard was as big as a kitchen table. He was <laughs> massive. Okay. And he had these big hands, you know, like the hands of a catcher, right? In baseball. Yep. So... I, it's my turn and I walk in. Hello, Mariah. And I've got my producer with me and we've got our recording equipment and all this stuff. And I hand her the box. Oh my God. She lost her mind. <gasps> Look at these flowers. And so soon her entourage starts coming in and she's opening the box and she's untubing the flowers and she's putting them in a vase and the whole thing. And while she's doing that, we're rolling tape. And I had learned after hundreds of women so far interviewing, I learned that when you are in a person's space, you're coming to them. It is always an opportunity to be able to dig in sooner than having to try to get to know one another because I'm in her territory. She's not in mine. So as she's putting the roses in the vase, I start asking her questions. So we start talking about her childhood. And I knew she grew up on Long Island. She starts telling me stories that she'd never told anyone before. They ended up in her book years later. But she's telling me about the fact that she was the only child, a multicultural child ever in her school, ever. So uh, mom is white. Dad is black. Mom, an opera singer. And so she's telling me all these stories about how in school Kids would call her Oreo cookie, obviously, for you know why. And they would yeah. just mock her and make fun of her all the time. And she was a very sad, disconnected child. But she was always passionate about her talent. And she had known that she was going to be not just any singer, but one of the best singers in the world 
from the time she was a little girl. And here's how. She's playing with her Barbies on the, do- on the floor one day, and her mother is practicing the Rigoletto. And she was appearing with the New York City Opera Company, for which she you know, sang for years. And so she's, her mother's practicing, and she missed one of the notes in the run. And Mariah stops playing, looks up at her mother and says, oh, no, mama, it goes like this. And completely on pitch, she gave her mother that run that she had just missed. And she said, my mother just sat there with her mouth hanging wide open. And I I wondered why she was so surprised. She was someone who knew with every fiber of her being that she was going to be a superstar. She just didn't know how she was going to get there. But she saw herself on stages. She imagined herself receiving awards. She imagined herself living in big, beautiful houses. She imagined herself, her songs coming out of the radio. A lot of people listening to this interview will say she was manifesting it. And that is exactly true. And I've come to find out, having interviewed almost a thousand women at this point in my career, that those women who are artists, recording artists, singers, visual artists, they all are actresses. They all imagined this. They all thought about it from the time they were very small children. So she says, I said, so when you were feeling so lonely and disconnected, what would you do? And she said, well, I would just go in my room and close the door. And I had a purple journal and I would write songs in my purple journal. And they were really, as most singers and songwriters will tell you, their earliest works are poems until they become more musical and they start to play an instrument. And in the case of Mariah, she did not play an instrument at that time. And that's not really what her forte is, but she's a very good songwriter. And her mom would think when she was in her room with the door closed that she was doing her homework. She was not, and she was not a good student. She said, I was an average student, you know, B minus C plus student. I was writing songs and I would, I would hide my journal in my sock drawer because I didn't want anyone to read my stuff. And when she graduated from high school, she thought she wanted to be a cosmetologist to try to make money. So she worked at a hairdress, hairdressing salon, and she was literally sweeping hair off the floor when she was 18 years old, and she hated it. And she knew this was not what she should be doing, but she needed the money. So she quits the job. She moves to Greenwich Village in New York City and lives with one of her best friends. She has no job. She has no way of making money. She's writing songs every day. She's trying to do backup singing work for artists. And she's got this journal that's filled with her poems. And I don't know how she met this person, but she met a music publisher. And the publisher, she said, well, these are my songs. And he looked at that journal and he said, I'll give you $5,000 for this journal. She had no way to pay her rent. She was scamming a bagel and, you know, iced tea from the vendor downstairs. She was sleeping on a mattress on the floor in a studio apartment. She believed so much in herself that she said, nope, take your, I don't need your money. And that year she was signed to a deal with Columbia Records. And some of the songs that were in that journal were the first five number one songs of her career. Wow. How do you like them apples? (laughs) Man, that's. That's an amazing, I mean, she, she did kind of what I did. My parents gave me a tape recorder when I was 10 years old 
And I used to make up my own radio programs. I used to play records and pretend to be a DJ and, and, and make up sportscasts because I knew that eventually that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into radio. I didn't that's know right. what I was going to do, but I wanted to get into it. And, and you didn't I, know and how you were going to make it happen, but you knew that was your destiny. Exactly. Exactly. Now, well, the, end, the end of the story is kind of funny. So we have this great interview. She's pouring her heart out to me. She's telling me all these things. She loves the roses. She's giving me a hug. It's a wonderful interview. And after that happened, every time she came to Boston, she would tell her record label, hey, call the rose lady and tell her I'd like her to inter introduce me onto the stage. She couldn't remember my name, but she knew me because I gave her roses. So I became the rose lady from Boston and I inter introduced her at the Wang. I introduced her at Gillette. I introduced her all over the place. Wow. <laughs> and wow, she would that's... always ask for me. And uh, that to me, that that is my lesson to everybody to be memorable, you know, to be that person that people remember. And to also, if you're ever going to interview someone and Ken, you know this only too well, be prepared. And exactly. when you're prepared and you got a ton of and you've done your research the person feels valued, right? And they exactly. right away they they give you they give you the goods. Exactly. In fact, I was interviewing Connie Francis once, and right in the middle of the interview, she stopped and she said, "How do you know all this stuff?" And I, said, <laughs> I said, "Connie, I I got your book read. Well, how did you get the book read? Well, my my father read it for me on cassette. How long did it take him to do it? And all this stuff. And I'm trying to get back to the interview." But she was so flattered that I knew, um, I mean, minutiae stuff. She was just ready to tell me anything in the world. Oh, and yeah. it does pay off. It really, really does pay off. And, you know, there have been there have been other interviews that I've done where uh, the subject matter is very, very sad. And uh, it'll break your heart. I, I've interviewed women who've lost their children I've interviewed women who not only have lost their children, but have had their children murdered. I've interviewed women at the top of their game and the bottom of their life. And they all have so much wisdom to share, no matter what they've done with their lives. Boy, I don't know if I could, if I could interview somebody who had a, a child taken from them or murdered or whatever. I, I, it's very takes hard. a lot of guts on your part. Well, it's very hard. And the first thing that you do is you have such incredible respect for this woman to show up and be willing to tell her story. I interviewed Maggie Bish and she was Molly Bish's mom, always will be, but Molly Bish's mom. And everyone might, you know, from the Boston area will remember that Molly was starting her job as a lifeguard uh, living in the Berkshires at a lovely little in a lovely little town where nothing ever happens. Her mother dropped her off for her first day of summer vacation as a lifeguard at a small pond. And she was abducted from her lifeguard stand. I guess nobody else was there yet. And she was missing for five years. And uh, a hiker or a hunter found pieces of her lifeguard bathing suit in the woods years later. And when Maggie walked into the studio for our interview, I always tell people, she wore her grief on her shoulders. It, it weighed her down. She had a heaviness about her. 
And keep in mind, she was a first grade teacher. I mean, think about your first grade teacher, you know, bouncy and fun. And and she was, she was able to do all those things. But when she talked about her daughter, the weight of that loss was so palpable in the room. It was stunning. I've also interviewed Sarah Pryor's mother. Barbara, uh, Sarah Pryor also was abducted. She, her, she's never been found. Uh, Sarah was living in Wayland, Massachusetts, when she was abducted, only 10 years old. And I've interviewed her mother, Barbara. And Barbara is uh, actually coming out with a book about what it was like to lose Sarah. And uh, I can't wait to talk to her when that happens. Wow, that's that's amazing stuff. Now, on a completely different note, you were at Magic for 25 years. Uh, Did you just get tired of getting up at in the morning or did you decide you wanted something else to do and did you have anything lined up Mm. when you left there that's a really good question uh i'm gonna say the first thing which is it is very hard to get up at 3 30 in the morning for a long time and i did it for two years god bless my friend gay vernon who did it for decades it's it is really it is really hard And I'm sure as everyone can guess from our interaction here, I'm a pretty high energy person, but getting up at 3.30 in the morning for me was like a form of torture. And I hated it. I'm not going to lie. I hated it getting up that early. And when I entered the job, I was paired up with uh, Mike Adams, who had been Gay Vernon's uh, co-host for, you know, almost 20 years. And only about six months into it, he he announced his retirement. So I thought, okay, well, this isn't good. First, first I've lost my my closest friend at the station, Gay Vernon, who had decided that she didn't want to get up at 2.30 in the morning anymore. And now Mike is leaving. And so we had a round of people that I auditioned with to just, you know, sort of see how things might go. And they paired me up with David O'Leary, who'd been known in the market for quite some time. And he had been our production director. And uh, we just didn't have any chemistry at all. But uh, that's not the reason why I left. The reason why I left was because I felt like at that point in my career, after 25 years, I felt like I'd done everything that I came to do at the station. Keep in mind, when I was hired, I was in an off-air position. I had no hope of ever being on the radio, ever. I got on the air because a disc jockey fell asleep for the third time, got fired. And they said, "Okay, you over there, you're on tonight. Right. And so that was my story. And I rose from being the, you know, the low woman on the totem pole, the secretary to the program director to being second in command of the station on the air for 20 years in in afternoon drive and the fill in girl for everyday part. And uh, so I thought, you know what? I've done everything here. I've climbed this mountain. Maybe I should do something on my own. And and also, there was a magic that happened with Gay and I doing Exceptional Women together. And when she left and the show became just mine, I I missed her tremendously. And it just, I just felt like, okay, now I've done that and Gay's gone and now I'm getting up at this early time and my my friends are gone. My program director was blown out and there was a new guy running the station. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this is my time. This is my time. And yes, I did have a plan. 
uh, I got my start as a singer. I've, I've been a singer all my life. It's what I've done more than anything else. And I thought, you know, I really want to do an album. And I had been in the studio just in my part time, you know, just on and off for a couple of years. And I had quite a few songs uh, and I'd had two songs, actually three that had already gotten national airplay. And so I thought, you know what, I want to just do this album and I call it Dream Come True. So that was what I did. I, I, I finished recording and I had a big CD party and I sold all my my CDs. I, I didn't, you know, I don't have a record deal and I wasn't trying to be, you know, a, a national singer or anything. I just, I wanted my friends and family to enjoy these songs. And so I, I had 500 CDs and I sold them immediately and I raised some money for a charity. And then I started my own production company. And that's what I've been doing ever since. But, but you're involved with Liz Bruner. Yes. Well, Liz and I, I, I've been working for Liz Bruner's company since 2016. And she quickly came to me. Now, she and I have known each other for many years. She was on my board of directors for Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, which is a trade organization that I had co-founded back in 2012. And so we were the best of friends. And she, when she exited WCVB, she thought, ooh, I'm going to be a communications coach. And she recruited me to do the same thing. And I said, excuse me, Elizabeth, like I call her, <laughs> what are you talking about? I am a broadcaster. I am not a communications coach. And she said, you don't know it, but you are. And she was right. I love coaching people about how to do presentations, how to do uh, keynote addresses, how to express themselves correctly. The amount of executives that we have who have filler word disease, as I call it, and an inability to express themselves is pretty stunning. And so I've been doing that with Liz since 2016. And I have a podcast series called The Speaker Coach, where I have 24 episodes where you can learn an awful lot of skills in there. And uh, yeah, I've been having a grand old time monetizing my content, and I created my own radio network. But you're also doing a show, The, the Story of Her Success. Mm-hmm. That's mm -hmm. right. The, the story behind her success is now, success. now 233 episodes. Wow. Yeah. Tell, tell us it, about that and some of the people that you've, again, I mean, show off your talents here. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll tell you a, a story about my favorite recent interview. So I get this book called Resurfacing. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I start reading the book. And let me just ask you, uh, did you see the movie Jaws? Uh, I didn't see the movie, but I read the book. Okay. So everybody, you know, dun, 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 yep, yep. you know, great white shark. Okay. So she grew up the daughter of a guy who had a boat. And in the summertime, they used to summer on Martha's Vineyard. And she begged her parents to let her go see the movie Jaws. And they said, oh, all right, fine. So she goes. She comes home and she speaks to her parents and she says, I am never going in the ocean again. <laughs> Same reaction I had. I mean, let me tell you something. When I go in the ocean, there's no frolicking here. OK, I go to about my knees. I make someone watch the water all around me. I am terrified of sharks. That's my biggest fear. OK, OK. 
So keep that in mind as we get ready for this interview. So she sits down. I've done all my research. She tells me the story. So she spends her whole adult life terrified of the ocean after seeing Jaws. She goes in boats, of course, and she wades a little bit, but no frolicking, just like me. So her friends were all like, what is your problem? She was like, guys, I just, I just never want to ever see a shark. I'm terrified. So her kids grow up and they're off to college and she experiences what a lot of your listeners probably have, which is the empty nest syndrome. So her girlfriend, her best friend, says to her, hey, guess what I did? So her, Laura is her name. She goes, what'd you do? She goes, I booked us a trip to the Bahamas and we're taking scuba diving lessons. And so Laura goes, I absolutely am not taking scuba diving <laughs> lessons. And she said, well, I've already paid for it. So yes, you are. So they get to the resort. And usually what happens is you're in a swimming pool for your first lesson. And this is where you're just learning how to put your mask on and use your airflow and all that other stuff. So they do all that. And they're, they've got these guys who are, you know, in charge of, of the, of the people in the class. And there's like six of them. And so now they go over to the dock and they get on this boat and they get out into the ocean and the guy goes, okay, let's go. And she said, I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of the boat. You know, you go, you go over backwards. Right. And so she's, she's, she's got her mask on. She's got her air tank on and he, and they're going to go tandem. So as soon as she gets in the water, I guess he's got her on. It's almost like he's attached to her by a leash. Okay. They get in the water and she goes down and down and down and he's right with her. And he says, let's just stay here. You know, he's giving her the sign, you know, let's just stay here on the, on the ocean floor for a minute, get your bearings. Right. So she's sitting, sitting there quietly. She's looking around to the left. She looks over to the right and she sees a dark image moving toward her. And it's rather large. And she says to herself, Hmm, I wonder what that is. And it's getting closer and closer and closer. And she realizes it's a shark. And she says it got so close to her. She said, by the way, sharks don't have any whites of their eyes. I saw the black (laughs) of his eyes. That is how close this shark came to her. And she said, I was motionless. And he came within two feet of her and then quickly veered off in the other direction. And I said, for the love of God, I am, I am like, my heart is racing this whole time. And, and, and I said, what were you terrified? She said, you know what? I wasn't, I was so blown away by the majesty and the, the, the size of this creature and the way that it veered off and swam away and all the beautiful, colorful fish in the Caribbean. She said, I thought, I kind of like this. She's now been on over 100 dives and she regularly swims with sharks. Okay. Now, how do you get your, how do you, how do you get your clients? I mean, do you advertise or, or, I mean, you how mean do my, people, 
my guest for the show, the story behind her success? No, no, you're, you're, you're speaking, you're, you're coaching. Oh, you want to talk about the coaching again? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, so that was, she was one of my guests for the story behind her success. So that was that story. Okay. So for, uh, for clients, a lot of my, I mean, obviously Liz and I have some pretty good name recognition and she's won many awards in television and I've won many awards in radio. And so she's got a pretty, uh, a pretty robust company. So there's never, never been a problem with getting clients. I think we're pretty unique because we're broadcasters. So we have a certain credibility versus another coach who may have had to learn these skills themselves without being live on the air. There's nothing like being live on the air now, is there? (laughs) No, no. I love it. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to find our clients. We're very lucky for that. Okay. If I came to you and said, listen, I want to, I want to be in broadcasting, but I, but I need help. What would you, what would you tell me and how would you work with me as far as being a coach is concerned? Sure. Well, a a lot of, you know, and I've also worked for Boston casting. They have a performance uh, set. Ooh, my goodness. I'm so sorry, Brett. I apologize. Uh, They have a, uh, a performance center. And I have a lot of people who come to me through Boston casting and I, through Bruner communications, that's a corporate communications training company, but I've worked with many people specifically who want to be voiceover talent. The short answer to my question regarding, I want to be a broadcaster is I am very cautious to make too many promises about a career in broadcasting in 2023 because there aren't a lot of opportunities in broadcasting, in radio in particular, like there once were. And so, uh, first of all, you have to have the gift of of a really nice sounding voice. If you have a regionality, I always tell people that we've got to work on that. We've got to get we've got to get rid of your Boston accent. We've got to get rid of your New York accent. We've got to get rid of your Midwest accent. We've got to get rid of your lazy California vibe. You need to sound like you could be in any city in the world. That's how you need to sound, or you know, in the English speaking world. That's number one. Number two is I tell people who want to get into broadcast that they need to get over themselves. And I don't, I don't say it to be mean. I tell them that you have to be willing to have every word that comes out of your mouth be criticized by someone else. And that takes a very special temperament. Some people do not do well with that at all. The air check session that I would have every single week, once a week after I'd get off the air, usually on a Monday, maybe on a Tuesday, what your program director does is he's he's going to bring up a file and he's going to press play and every word you've said on your air shift is going to be criticized. Well, now um you know that was a 10 that was a 10 second uh um 
intro on that song you know you almost stepped on that vocal and uh when you came out of that song uh you know why did you say this and why did you say that and why did you say the time twice and why didn't you do this story and why did you do that story and it's like oh my god you know so you have to have a temperament in order to do that and the same is true for television the same is true for television you have to be able to take direction and if you can't you're in the wrong business so number one, I also, and I also tell people, and this is very interesting about this particular generation, they want to start at the top. They want to yeah. start at, they want to start at the number one station. They're like, Hey, hello, kiss 108. Hello, magic 106.7. <laughs> Hi, here I am out of college and I was on my college radio station. I'd like a job today. And you're just going to get laughed at period. End of discussion. So there are, and I'm so happy to report this. There are still small market stations that are hiring live talent. There aren't a lot out there, but there still are some great stations like WATD in Marshfield, uh -huh. Massachusetts, which is an award-winning <coughs> local station. One of my favorite stations on the planet, WMRC in Milford, which is another one of my stations that runs my show. These people win awards all the time for excellence in local radio. So my advice is always, small market get over yourself and be you know absolutely persevere because this is not going to be an easy road and you're not going to make a lot of money i'm going to tell you something that is absolutely true that people who were who are in my role now and i've been off the air for seven years okay are making less money than i was making when i left do people sometimes get discouraged and quit and drop out all the time in every industry you, you I'm know talking it, about the broadcasting your uh, industry yeah. our industry yeah of course they do yeah. and and sometimes it's because they don't understand that the wait is long and you do have to earn your stripes in broadcasting period because you have to have experience you have to have experience. You have to be able to know what to do when all sorts of things happen. And yep. that comes from practicing. That comes from being live on the air. You know? Yeah, tell me about it. I know all about it. Mm. First time I went on the air, Larry Glick overslipped. Let's see what I, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I had to go on the air. I was never so scared in my life. Oh, it's but the same with me. Yeah. I mean, I, I got my shot because a, a disc jockey fell asleep for the third time and got fired. And my boss said, okay, you're on tonight. And I said, oh, please don't make me do that. <laughs> and I did. I, and I, then I spent the next 25 years doing it and I loved it. Well, we are both very lucky, I think, to have been in a business that we both enjoyed. <clears throat> and if you'll pardon the slight egotism, we were both very good at. Oh, yeah. You know, I'll tell you, Ken, what I miss the most, and, you know, I've created my own radio network. I have nine stations that run the story behind her success. And it's a podcast that launches on Thursdays, but it runs on weekends on these nine stations. And I'm proud of that. But what I miss are the listeners. I miss, let me tell you a couple things that happened to me in my career. Number one, I talked to listeners like they were my friends. And I think they recognized there was a lot of smile in my voice. And I think they recognized this person really loves what she does. 
And I also shared the stories of my life. I was a single mother through most of my career. And I talked about that, not too much, but just enough so that listeners would know in case they were going through some of the things that I was going through raising my children alone. And a couple stories. Uh, the first thing, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but I was filling in for Nancy Quill, biggest, biggest day part on the station. And I was getting on the train in Auburndale to get to the station on time. And it was a beautiful summer day. And as I was running down the platform, my shoe fell off. And I thought, oh, God, if I stop, run, go back there and get my shoe, the conductor's already getting ready to start this train. And he's standing there on the on the step saying, come on, lady, let's go. I'm going to miss. I'm going to be late. Uh, and you cannot be late in broadcast, period, end of discussion. So I thought, I'm just going to keep going. So I have one shoe on and one shoe off. My there, There's my shoe on the platform. I get to the station, one shoe on, one shoe off, hobbling in. I make my ID at 9 a.m. And then in my first break at about 9.15, here's what I said. Magic 106.7, that's Madonna. And that's, you know, Maroon 5 and so-and-so and blah 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 It's 9.16 at Magic 106.7. Hey, listen, if you happen to be in the Auburndale um, T-Station area and you see a lady's white size eight pump, could you please bring it back to the station? I had blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm telling you within one hour, I had my show. One oh, hour. Okay. That's a great story. A limo that driver drove over there, a regular magic listener drove over there, picked up my shoe and brought it to the radio station. <laughs> and that's I just the connection with listeners, right? That's what I miss about radio. You don't you don't realize the impact that you have until you're on the air with uh, in radio with a with listeners. a big station like that too. I mean, and with all your years at W um, it, 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 WBZ, it, not just it, you know even into Canada. I mean, people are hearing yep. you. We yep. we cumed two million people a week. That's a lot of people. Now, next next story. My daughter Colleen, who I used to talk about all the time on the radio. In fact, filling in on the morning show, she calls me up and asks me if I can uh, call the school. She's got a head cold. So she calls me up, Bob, I really don't feel well. I'm just wondering <laughs> if you could please just, uh, please, could you please call and tell them I'm too sick. I can't come to school. Well, what she doesn't realize is I'm taping her this whole time, right? <laughs> so I run this back on the air. Okay, guys, here's my daughter, Colleen, trying to get out of school today, okay? So when I finally did call her in sick, the whole office staff at Wellesley High School is like, oh my God, we heard you on the radio, right? <laughs> we heard how she sounds. And then a couple of years later, uh, Colleen was almost killed in a car accident when she was in college. And I was off the air for a couple of weeks. She was in the ICU. Uh, she had life-threatening internal injuries. You guys, I cannot tell you how many cards, letters, phone calls. By the time I got back to the station, my entire office was filled with gifts from listeners, people telling me they were praying for her, you name it. It was unbelievable. And thank God she survived. But it was a scary time. Third story, when I got married, everybody knew I'd been a single mom for so many years. And when I fell in love with Tom, I fell hard, right? 
And people would call and be like, oh my God, you know, when are you getting married? Blah, blah, blah. I got gifts, wedding gifts from listeners, phone calls, you name it. And one funny thing, which I shared with listeners, the week before we got married, my husband-to-be decides that he's going to mow his lawn and cut down all this poison ivy and poison sumac and whatever else is going on at his house. And he gave me poison ivy, like all over my body, okay? And I'm getting married, right? And I, Dan Justin, is he's my partner in Afternoon Drive. He is laughing at me, and I'm like covered with poison ivy. And he's like, Candace, how'd you get so covered with poison ivy? <laughs> right? Oh, my God, it was a funny break. But, you know, again, I talked about my life, and I miss that. I miss the listeners more than anything. I was at the, there was a Special Olympics. I'm going to share this with you. And then, unfortunately, we've got to wrap this up because I think we've gone past our allotted time. But I was at, there was a Special Olympics event at Boston Garden. And there were people there like Bobby Orr, Rico Petroselli, um, all different athletes from the different sports. And some gentleman came up to me and he said, are you Kenny Meyer? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I want you to know that, you know, I just lost my wife a couple of weeks ago. But he said every Saturday night she would sit up and listen to your program. And he she'd always say to me, you know what Kenny did last night? Kenny said this or we didn't mm -hmm. he did that. And he said that helped keep her alive. Oh, wow. What an incredible I never, honor. I never forgot that. That's that's kind of like your stories, like about Maggie Bish and, and, yeah. and people like that. Well, so, the, I guess the I guess the bottom line for both of us is we are forever lovers of radio and the power yeah. of those connections. Yep. Listen, you you have been spectacular. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, and you know that if I could ever, unfortunately, I'm not a woman, so I can't get on your program. <laughs> but if you can ever figure out a way that I can in another life, call me and let me know, because you know that if you want it, you got it. You'll be on so, my short list. Yeah. Thank you so much again for doing this. I really appreciate it. It has been a joy. And I wish you all the luck in the world and whatever else you try and accomplish. And uh, hopefully you're going to get in the Broadcasters Hall of Fame because you should be there. Well, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> Ken, so much, Ken. It's been my pleasure. And that'll do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.